Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Flail Forward. I'm joined today by Karis Nauer. Hello. Fred. Hi. Catrice. Hello. And Mark. Hello. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, Rob Davio has joined us. He has designed, well, he invented the legacy system, uh, starting with Risk Legacy and moving on to Pandemic Legacy and Seafall and Pandemic 2, as well as work on Trivial Pursuit and his new projects for restoration games, Fireball Island and the upcoming Dark Tower. The more I read about it, the more excited I get about it. But this is not a board game podcast. This is an RPG podcast. So we're not really going to dig into any of that stuff. We're going to dig into the stuff that maybe Rob doesn't get to talk about all that much. So Rob, hello, welcome, and thanks for joining us. How'd you get into RPGs? What's your experience with them? And do you have an impression of the current state of the medium at the moment? Uh, cool, multi-part question. Let's see if I can do this. First of all, hello. Um, I very much remember my first role-playing moment. Uh, I was away at summer camp in summer of 1981, and some people were talking, and they had D&D books back at home, but they didn't bring them, so they were kind of doing a bookless, diceless, interactive story thing. And they were talking, and they were like, what, what are you guys talking about? What are you doing? Like, we're playing a game. And they were just standing up in the cabin. I'm like, what do you mean you're playing a game? They're like, oh, we're playing a game, and we're all adventurers, and they're leading us in a story. And I'm like, wait, what? And they're like, yeah, we'll write you in. And then he's like, you see this guy, he's on the beach. And you're like, welcome to the party. And I'm like, this is the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> I'm like, what do I do? They're like, just tell me what you do and I'll tell you what happens. I was like, I, I love everything about this. And I don't remember, I think off and on, we just sort of told a story and they said, oh, you know, normally, and they kind of told me, normally there's dice and there's books. And I went home from summer camp and I picked up the Dungeons and Dragons basic set like the next week. And was that the white box? It was a blue box. Oh, the blue box. Blue and red. No, it was a red box. It was basic and blue was expert, which I soon bought. And then I, by Christmas of that year, I had moved to advanced Dungeons and Dragons. I still have the books and my mom wrote in the inside cover, Robbie Davio, Xmas 81. So I know exactly when I got them. And my first module I bought was A2. It was part of the Slaver series. Um, and I, but I was like young, I was like 11, 12. And, you know, they talked about tournaments and Gen Con and all sorts of concepts where I was like, I don't, I don't know what this is. Um, but I read them and read them and reread them and just became a total D and D nerd. Um, and that pretty much shaped my career. That's how I ended up here was from that moment. So you were, you, you got into RPGs and then you, the, the pivot to board games happened much later. Yeah, I, I played board games, but I played more mass market kid games. Like I wasn't into the big Avalon Hill games. And even in the 80s, when I was a teenager, I didn't play the Game Master series like Axis and Allies and stuff like that. Like they were they were too dry. I wanted story and adventure. And I continued to read role playing materials long after I'd gotten to high school and no one really wanted to play anymore. The initial wave had gone. I played Villains and Vigilantes. I played Top Secret. I played Star Frontiers and Traveler and all sorts of early to mid 80s stuff. Um, then continued reading it, played little pickup games off and on in college. And then when I was in college, a friend of mine sat down one day, we're like, let's write an epic adventure. And we wrote something that has been played through in its entirety once. It's a, it took 50 play sessions. 
um, to play through. And we just made this huge thing. Like we'd stay up all night until dawn, like, you know, at age 21, we'd go wait tables together and then go back to our apartment and just work on this thing. That sounds um, awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I still like it. It's still in my basement. I'm looking at it. I'm like, I want to, now I have a career. I want to get this published somewhere. Oh, man. Totally do it. And um, yeah, and so like I was living in Philly and I played D&D there and I ran that and I moved back to Boston and I was in advertising at the time and I pitched an article to Dragon Magazine and they said, yeah, it sounds good. Write it up. And then they're like, yeah, we're buying it. And that got published. And I was like, this is it. I don't care about advertising. I don't. I want to write role-playing games. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, Friday's going to be role-playing game writing day. Um, I'll, I'll work Monday through Thursday for money. And then right then saw that uh, Parker Brothers was hiring a copywriter, which I was. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, I'll go see what that's about. And then I got in there and they're like, oh, you sound more like a writer designer. Oh, would you want a job as a board game designer full-time with benefits? I went, yeah, sure. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> here I am 21 years later. Yeah, man. That's, well... So I had no plans on being a board game designer. I was totally 100% committed, quit my job to be a role-playing writer. And then the board game like truck hit me and I'm like, I'm on this truck now. Let's go. Yeah, for sure, man. I mean, I, I don't think any of us would have turned down that opportunity. That, that would, I mean. Oh, it, it was yeah. very smart. I'm not going to say <laughs> I should have been writing uh, second edition D&D stuff freelance instead of taking that job. That was yeah. That was a good call on my part. I think so. I think so. So, so you start, did you stay like when you were a board game designer, when you stayed, did you stick with RPGs and like, what did you keep going with the hobby as a hobby? Um, or did you like design stuff on the side? Um, off and on. Um, when I first started, it was 1998, basically 99. I played a ton of board games cause I had to catch up. So a lot of last decade was just playing board games, board games, board games. But then I got to this decade and I thought, not that I know everything about board games, but when I play a board game now, it's work. Even when I play someone else's, I'm like, who's the artist? What's the publisher? Oh, I like what they did there. I like the auction. I've, mm-hmm. Other than that Dragon Magazine article, I've never gotten paid anything to do a role-playing game. So I will play role-playing games now. Usually just pick up games. I don't have anyone nearby to do a campaign um, and, and just love them because I can just be a kid I'm again. sure you could attract those people. Uh, I don't have the time to run anything. And I, I started to put something together with friends via the internet this spring, but it fell apart a little as these things do, but I'm thinking of putting it back together. Um, I have some friends who just coincidentally, I have two different couples who are moving to the area next month out of nowhere that I know, um, like one to my town and one to two towns over. And so I can see this picking back up. I was just on my, put on my to-do list the other day, like start RPG group. <laughs> yeah, that was that was the first thing on our list when we uh when my wife and I moved to Portland was like, all right, let's let's worm our way into the game stores and see if there's anything going on. Or which Portland? Uh Oregon. Boo. Sorry. Sorry. I'm I'm I was born in Portland, Maine. Oh, cool. So, so that actually Portland, Oregon's very nice, I hear. I just have to, you know, stand up for my home state. I I understand. I understand. Yeah. But yeah, it, it is nicer than Portland, Maine, mainly because it's warmer, I think. Ah, Portland. Anyway, I could get on a whole sidetrack about Portland. Portland, Maine's restaurant scene because I'm a big food guy. Um, but an answer to wrap this all up, I haven't forgotten your multi-part question. The state of the industry now, I would not say I have a firm grasp on it whatsoever. I mean, I was my, I, you know, play here and there and these little home brews and what people 
play and um but no i do not have a firm grasp of it you could probably name five systems i'd be like that sounds cool never heard of it right well i i wasn't really asking about like if you had a firm grasp but like what's your just impression generally of like um do you have do you have a sense of like what's going on or are you just like hitting people's homebrews like that um i don't i don't have a good sense i mean it seems like there's a lot going on which is yeah. cool and there's yeah. a lot of different things and people have pushed the genre very far from you know kick in the door kill the monster take their stuff too mm -hmm. bad monster you, wrong place, wrong time. Like a, i'm sorry do you view that as like a net positive um i yeah i mean it, there's it means there's more interesting things that i might like to try to be fresh and there's more things that i have no interest in whatsoever but that just means there's more choices for everyone involved yeah, yeah. um like i see some stuff and i do work in a disclosure for wizards of the coast i made a betrayal legacy game for them which is basically just a role-playing game don't tell anyone um <laughs> and uh so i i have a fondness for dnd &D, but i see a lot of the stuff that comes out for dnd &D now and i'm like oh i've done it right like if i hadn't done this right. i would love it but i've done it and so i want something new but that's always the nature with me what's the new game and what what's a new story to tell um that said for my 46th birthday maybe 45th a couple years ago i had a friend of mine uh ran a it was fifth edition D D, but with all first edition tropes hmm. um there were we were all in our late 40s and so we all remembered and he came up with every trope and the players all wrote down on little index cards it was like a game what tropes we think were going to be in there and then one one of them happened like gelatinous cube in a hallway you know people would flip over the card like called it frictionless room called it right like we're all so excited uh, so i still have a soft spot for some of uh some of that classic sort of playing as well um but i do really want to kind of get back into it because I, most of the board games i make not all but many of them are just thinly veiled role-playing games that's what the whole legacy thing is <laughs> Yeah, that that was definitely my impression from Pandemic Legacy. Uh, my wife and I played that through that with a couple of people, and we got to the end, um, and we were just like, "Oh, we just played an RPG campaign, really." Mm -hmm. I, look, I I don't have a local group, so I'm like remote GM to the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it it it, it works. I mean, so one of the reasons I I wanted to. Um, get you on was to actually talk about legacy mechanics because my my rpg that i'm working on has legacy mechanics as in there are rules in there that are that none of the players know when they open the book up and they are not in the main book and they are included in well will be included in envelopes within like the the box that i'm i'm envisioning is more like one of those second edition box sets um but it's been tricky because i can't i can't like depend upon certain story points coming up. So I'm, I'm, I'm linking the unlocking of the re legacy mechanics to certain actions the players take. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Welcome to my design problems. Like, yeah. well, how, do I, how do I make sure that this happens, but at the same time, make it a completely free choice where they didn't realize that it was going to happen. Yeah. Cool. Talk about that. <laughs> how do you do that? Give me your secrets. Um, well, I, I can cheat. For, and for those of you, if this is largely a role-playing podcast, should I tell what a legacy game is for those people who yes, please do. Haven't played? Yes. So a legacy game is like a subgenre of board games where it's basically like a, a campaign game. Um, but unlike a regular campaign game, it's got permanent consequences. This shows my first edition D&D &D roots. Um, 
where they'd like rip your character sheet up in front of you. Um, so basically what happens is you're going to play a series of games, usually somewhere around 12 or 15 games, and they'll start as a board game. But some of the things that you do in a game, some of the actions you take will cause permanent consequences or changes to the board. So certain cards might come in, certain cards might get ripped up. You might apply stickers to the board. You might apply stickers to cards. You might write on things. You might name on things. Um, there will also be, as you mentioned, different envelopes or boxes where there is content that is hidden away that you will open as you play when it hopefully is narratively appropriate. That will further change the game, add new rules, or otherwise give you different options. So at the end, on game 15, you're playing a sibling of the game you played at the beginning, but certainly enough has changed where it's not the exact same game 15 times in a row. It's almost like leveling up. You get access to new stuff. But because people are making decisions as they go, each person's journey will be similar but unique. Uh, because usually I wrap this all up with a meta story. There's often a deck of cards that you will draw one at a time and read at different, you know, game one, read these three cards, game two, read these four cards that will tell an overall story that will be mostly the same from game to game. So you've got a major plot and then you have individual episodes or, or sessions and, you know, you have characters and characters level up and characters die and characters start. Yeah, it's a role playing game in a box. Hmm. And a generational one as well. Oh yeah. I mean, what I like is there's no, there's no take backs. It bothers some people. That's what right. the difference between a campaign and a legacy game is, you know, you're going to make a decision at some point in the game to do something and you're going to put a sticker on and you can't reset it or take it back or go, well, that was a bad idea. And you're like, yeah, it was a bad idea, but you made it. So now deal with the consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that how did, how much did your, did your, RPG experience like inform those kind of design goals? Uh, well, tremendously. Both RPG yeah. and I, I skipped this in my little bio of myself, but I wanted to be a television writer uh, in college and just out. So uh, legacy games are a combination of a season of television, a role-playing campaign, take some stuff from board games, take some stuff from comic books, take some stuff from video games, right? It's sort of an intersection of a lot of those things. But yeah, plotting out a a campaign, you know, like, okay, the characters are low level, they can only do this. How do they level up? How do they change? I mean, that's just sort of the power curve of a role-playing game. But then if you pull in some more subtle stuff, you say like, well, what are the characters going to care about? You know, do they get attachments right. to any other people or things? What happens if those people or things are put into jeopardy? You know, and you, and you, and just like, you know, you, take the hero's attention. It's like, well, hero, do you want to save the girl or defuse the bomb? Right? Like those sort of <laughs> yeah. tropey things. And, you know, what I've discovered with, with Seafall, I tried to do some more subtle, some more deeper stuff. And it's the one that for a variety of reasons, I think the length and it needed some editing and stuff, but people didn't like as much. Mm -hmm. um, I've since gone back and done a little bit more comic book tropey, like summer action blockbuster. Okay. Um, on purpose. I mean, there's some subtle stuff in there. There's a whole bunch of subtle stuff in Betrayal Legacy and foreshadowing and callbacks and homages to literature. Um, but I, I realize people might play three games and then not get anyone together for the summer and then pick it up in September. And there's no DM with the notes saying, okay, here's where we were. Does everyone remember? Like, the, you have to remember the story. Right, so right. If the story is very, very subtle, uh, you'll pick it up and be like, I. I don't remember what's going on. So I, I, I need to make some stuff a little bit more 
not quite a Michael Bay movie, I mean, but a little more obvious and easy to remember. Um, I, I didn't answer your question of how to solve your design problem, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think I've got a lock on it, but it's just, it was just, I'm just, I was just kind of curious about like how you'd go about maybe editing the legacy process to be included in an RPG because it's it's a it seems that the the freeform nature of an RPG like necessarily limits what kind of things you can expect the players to do. Uh, it does. I mean, that's one of the advantages of a board game is I can put things like there are a list of rules that you can do and the characters can only do these actions and you can't have a person be like, I stabbed the wizard in the face. And you're like, wait, no, you weren't supposed to do that. Right. Because because their actions are limited, um, they can't drive it off the road as much, which is both the thrill and horror of running a role playing game. Um, I mean, off the top of my head, I would probably come up with something that was a binary thing. like you are either going to prevent the assassination of the king and he will live or he will die. And as a result, you'll either get this rule or that rule. And because the king is either alive or dead and they don't like, maybe they don't do some weird undead thing or something. I don't even know what your genre is, but um, then I know, okay, one of these two outcomes will happen. And therefore, no matter what they do or how they get there, they will open one of these two things. Um, and those two things could be very similar inside. Um, whereas if you say like, open this when someone has achieved, um, inner reflection in peace, um, <laughs> that might be hard to guarantee that's ever going to happen. Yeah. Well, it almost sounds like it might actually be a good idea to think about it almost like a flow chart where you basically built it in such a way that you have to follow the chart in a certain way until you basically reach one of these various points. And, um. Yeah, for Betrayal Legacy, we did have flowcharts of every chapter, right? We didn't know what all the details were going to be. For people who haven't played Betrayal on House of the Hill, it's like a, a little horror short story role-playing board game generator. Um, if you like role-playing games, you don't play many board games, I recommend Betrayal at House on the Hill because it it is like a GM-less little horror story. Very swingy. Right. Sometimes it's awesome. Sometimes it's like, well, that didn't quite come together. Um, but we, but um, we did flowchart each legacy chapter, so we didn't know what rooms they would find or like who would become a traitor and try to kill everyone. But we knew the points that they were going to hit along their journey as a result, and that did help us keep it grounded. Do you have a current favorite RPG that like that isn't D and D that? uh you maybe heard about and want to try or one that you that sort of has grabbed your grabbed your interest lately um well i played a lot of things that aren't D, D over the past handful of years friends get together about twice a year we just had one and, and just play games and there's often role-playing games that happen there unfortunately for the past couple of years i've been play testing my own stuff because it's just here are 30 people who will play test for four days and I haven't had as much chance to role play, but I did play a game this spring, which was then kickstarted successfully called A Cool and Lonely Courage, which a little independent thing from a guy named Alex White over in, in England, who I know um, casually, but personally. And um, it is the story of 
and I'm going to forget some of the details, the names, but the largely the British, but the allies during World War II would send women undercover into occupied France to act as spies. Um, and they would be passing messages or doing drop-offs or all the things that spies do. And they were trained completely as their male counterparts in espionage and lying and killing and poison and everything. Hmm. That sounds really cool. Yeah. yeah. Their expectancy, their, like before they were captured, was like three weeks. And they knew this going in. Wow. And then when they were captured, the Germans treated them again, um, just like any other spy with torture and a lot of very awful things. This is not an easy role-playing game. It is a one-off for reasons I'll tell you in a second is it starts out and you're in prison and you've been captured and you're getting to know each other and you do a series of flashbacks of how you got there. And there's a very light card drawing mechanism. Like at the start of a scene, you draw a card and it will tell you, depending on the suit, it will tell you like whether it has to be about love or whether it has to be, you know, a success or a horrible failure or involved death or those sorts of things. And then it's, it's very acting heavy. Um, you do have some traits, but no numbers. There's no checks and everyone just role plays at the table to create these uh, scenes until you rejoin the present. And then depending on certain things and which cards you have left, uh, most of you don't make it to the end of the session. Occasionally, some ah. people do. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of like Call of Cthulhu, but in German prison. Yeah, it is. It was haunting because in between each scene, the the woman who was sort of GMing it, um, I guess facilitating is a better better term, um, would read an excerpt from like a real person in World War II and what she did and what her fate was. So at, at all points, you're not like, hey, this is cool, I'm killing an orc. You're like, whoa, this is deep. That's a that's some heavy stuff. Yeah. Like it's not that's not the one you break break out with the 15 year olds to get them into RPGs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that one stuck with me for a while. Mm -hmm. That reminds me, there was a game called Train. Did you ever hear about that? Yeah, train. Yeah. train a, a, um, it was more of an installation. I don't think you could buy it, so I'm going to spoil it. Where it was like a train management game, but it was like big. It was played like almost on a ping pong table with a lot of miniatures, and you were trying to get your trains to the station like fastest and most efficiently. And there was this slow reveal that you were all Germans, and the trains were filled with people going to a prison or concentration camp. Yeah, and that you had just been quote doing your job, right? Right, you were just one of those yeah. German people who was just like, "Hey, my job is to get stuff from A to B. I don't pay attention to politics and what that would feel like." Mm -hmm. uh, that was about ten years ago. Yeah, and, that was and, that, is, that is so obliviously dark. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, got a lot of uh, a lot of attention, but I do play lighter things. I mean, I'm always up for a game of fiasco. Um, I tend to like the acting heavy ones, as you can hear. And then when I was trying to get together my, I'll ask you guys, I was trying to get together my homebrew one this spring and it kind of fell apart. Um, I, uh, I can't find it. I downloaded a, a system that was sort of fascinating because it was hitting a lot of the things that, and it had some legacy stuff. There were cards. It was like card deck driven, but your card deck was your character and you would scar up your cards. And when you drew it later, it would be like a flashback or something. Oh. 
That sounds like Mark's game. Yeah. <laughs> so I should find it now in case you're designing a game where someone's played in that similar sandbox. Yeah, feel free to pass it along. Um, yeah, now i got to figure out where it is without like looking on my hard drive while I'm talking and then not paying any attention to what you're saying. Oh, here it is. Unbound. Perfect. Oh, I think I vaguely heard of that. Yeah, sounded like a fun uh, game. From about three years ago by a guy named Grant Howitt and Chris Taylor. Um, very, I think, combat heavy. It kind of assumes that the characters are going to be heroes and that there's going to be combat as a center point to each session, one or two combats. Um, so it's not going to be like you're a bureaucrat or, you know, they, they do have rules for non-combat encounters, but the real heart of the rules where they get granular is about heroic battle scenes. Right. Interesting. Very cool. Yeah. The heroic part actually sounds like it's kind of an important part there, and it's kind of similar to like the captured spy game you were talking about as well, like where it's really a lot of it's the emotional aspects to it almost that the players end up feeling. So do you have like any kind of method that you try to explicitly elicit specific emotions in your games or when you're playing RPGs or the plot or the character aspects or anything like that? Um, yeah. Uh, people who play my legacy games come up to me at conventions and they're comedically mad at me. Uh, they're like, <laughs> how did you win it? Right? I mean, uh, they're like, I was doing this and I was doing this and then you did this plot twist and like you had mm -hmm. been playing me the whole long, uh, the whole time and you had given me this objective and I didn't know and I was like, ta-da! Like you were a character in a book. Um, right. So I do think almost every game I design whether it's got heavy role-playing game things or not. I'm like, what's the emotions I want the characters, the players to have? Like, who are they? Are they feeling heroic? Are they scared? Are they gritty? Um, I kind of build everything up from there. Um, and I will gleefully sort of try to evoke interesting behaviors out of people or put them in places where they have to make decisions that, I mean, I, in a board game, I'm not going to get to, like, really dark places. Mm -hmm. And it's like, here's a busload of school children being, you know, like, no, I'm not, like, going to do anything like, yeah. like that. But, like, within the realm of role-playing, comic book, television tropes, I'll try to put people in a place where they, um, they experience some emotions and, and try to figure out what to do with them. I actually never really like most of my games like encouraging people to be like evil uh when i do run a role-playing group i was like look you guys if you want to be evil you're just going to get arrested and killed and we'll start again mm -hmm. um <laughs> I, I i've just gotten to like middle age and i'm like okay I, I hope everyone got their goth phase out like it doesn't mean you have to be squeaky clean. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> yeah. but but that's but that's just me i'm like i just want to tell a story about people who may be troubled or maybe flawed or maybe compromised, mm -hmm. but at least at the end of the day, mostly trying to do the right thing. Now it's not always the case. I played a role playing. I played a, Oh, Dusk city outlaws. Uh, oh yeah. Sure. And my character just uh, was not very nice. So I threw a child at some point to create a distraction. 
<laughs> Man, that's the reaction same. I was looking for. When everyone's like, "Are you sure?" I'm like, "It's it's. We're just telling a story. I'm not really throwing a child in real life." So I, I, I sometimes will will go the other way after just setting myself up on the soapbox of being pious. I I would step <laughs> right down and take that soapbox apart and say, "I just like interesting <laughs> characters put in interesting situations." Yeah, which I, I think my, is good I, storytelling in general. Like this is the kind of thing that games that have a story element or RPGs really try to evoke is how do you how do you react in these situations or how do you get that emotional response from people playing the game? Right. Well, I mean, yeah. I, when we played uh, when we played Pandemic Legacy, there's a moment in Pandemic Legacy where um, I, I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't played, but there's a moment that affects one of the characters in a pretty severe way. And my buddy who got affected it like eternally curses your name for that moment because yeah. like he was really attached. He was really attached to that character. And he's like, what? Well, we tell you at the beginning, choose yep. the best character for this session, but everyone just picks the same character and then you get emotionally attached. Even we told we told you not to. So then if one character gets messed up, you're like, but that's my character. We're like, well, we tried to warn you. Um, but yes, I regularly, from my friend group, the group I was talking about meets twice a year, will get mm -hmm. text with a picture in it that just has a middle finger. <laughs> <laughs> and I will just say, I'll just respond back and be like, what game and where? And then they'll answer it. I'm like, cool, yep. glad I provoked a response. Yeah, like, man. that's pretty hard to do from two years in the past and a thousand miles away. Yeah, that's incredibly impressive. I, I wish I was getting middle fingers from the past, too. Yeah, <laughs> ghost fingers. <laughs> ghost fingers. It's like, oh yeah, I remember doing that vaguely. Somebody found out about it. So, um, I one of my friends made up a, a like a water bottle that says "Players Tears" on the outside, and when <laughs> someone says sends one of those to me, I just take a picture back of me drinking from that bottle, saying "So refreshing." <laughs> it is so epic. <laughs> Man, we should get those made, and sell them as merch. Yeah. That would be really great if the if you're DMing something, and I'll always say DM instead of GM because of my roots. But um, and uh, just having that bottle next to you really sets the tone. Yeah, I guess so. Um, the the next sort of line of questioning we were going to ask um was about uh, making RPGs more accessible. Boil down to how could RPGs make themselves more accessible, or you know, especially for new players that have never actually played one before. I think it's, I mean, this question's been around since role-playing games have been around, and you've seen it in a number of different ways. And mm -hmm. honestly, if you're going, my gut is it's going to be a board game with heavy RPG elements. Mm -hmm. um, theater of the mind in an abstract character sheet is not going to work as well for people. Although, in today's world, you can sit down, like, you ever play a video game with hit points and levels and killing things and branching and character upgrades? They're like, yeah. You're like, cool. We're doing that without a screen and people will probably get it. Um, mm -hmm. I've explained role-playing games to people. They're like, I don't get it. I don't understand. I'm like, we'll play one right now. Pick a character from Lord of the Rings, and they'll, you know, name someone. I'm like, all right, here you are. Do you want to take the left path or the right? And they're like, the left. I'm like, ta-da. Like, you just were a character in a scene. They usually don't get it from that. But um, <laughs> I, would end up, I would end up making something that just had a lot of hand-holding, right? Instead of being mm -hmm. like, theater of the mind it's like here's a board and here's where we are or here's the map where we're journeying or here are the here's the deck of treasure cards that we can accomplish now what they'll end up doing is focusing really more on leveling up 
and be more of a board game than a role-playing game. But if then, I mean, I probably can't design this on the fly, figure out, well, how do you get interesting story and character decisions in there? Yeah. Like a legacy game. How do you allow a character to grow? How do you allow them to have as much freedom as possible, but not break it? And one of the ways you do it is you have a, um, you have a GM'd board game, right? You don't make it where everyone's a player in it and the GM can adapt and adopt and kind of be like, oh, you're doing this? Oh, yeah, it covers how to do that. And I think just people who don't play a lot of games need to, and they know of a tabletop or board game or like, where's the board? Where's my piece? And you take mm -hmm. that away and, and they get a little like fuzzy as to like, well, what am I, what exactly am I doing here? Mm -hmm. So Yeah, that's, that's, that's something we've all been like struggling with. That exact thing is like where, how can you design in story and how can you design in motivation and how can you can design in um, twists that are actual subversions and not just twists? And how do you um, encourage the players to like take the reins of the story in some sense? Because I feel like that's what most games are reaching for is like giving players more agency not less mm -hmm. and 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 so you know one of the things we've been talking about like having you know long and 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 vigorous debates over are like those exact things like how do you where do you put the incentives for players such that they will um you know tell the gm where they want to go and then the gm can just lay down that track for them yeah, I mean, and that's something that I could throw out a bunch of top-level ideas here and then play it and realize none of them work, and then it would take six to 18 months to make it work and realize how wrong my initial ideas were. But, you know, again, I think it's I think it's a matter of giving players something tangible, and if that tangible thing is like a deck of cards that says what they want to do and they decide which three cards they're giving to the GM and then the GM has to, like, do what they want, they don't have to be like, I'm going to this city, but it's like, I'm... They can be like goals or noble things. You give people agendas, like individual agendas that their character wants to do, but then you have to tie it in that their character will level up or get like an extra equipment slot for doing it so that it's more of like a tangible result other than emotionally they feel like their character has grown. Cause so um, I, I, to me, I just go back to like giving people things that are tangible and switching the motivations away from like, no one's going to want to play that cool and lonely courage if you've never played a role-playing game or very few people would. Some people who had like an acting bug in high school or something would be like, oh, wow, we're just doing like casual improv theater. Um, but if people don't play it, you need to give them like, here's how you win, here's an item. Uh, going back to Betrayal at House on the Hill, which I talked about before, I mean, this does a lot of that. There's a dynamically generated house. It has items. It has skill checks um it has character tropes i'm a priest and you're a cheerleader and you're the little kid and we got trapped in a haunted house you're like i you know and then people just naturally fall into doing that character um so there are a number of hybrids that if you got people playing you could then move them to the next step and say hey we're this pretty close to a role-playing game do you want to try a role-playing game and they would probably get most of it then yeah i mean i i uh um like games like uh, Gloomhaven and uh, like Descent and like the ones that are like almost like really not being 
like coy about being an RPG in a box. Like they're like, that's what they almost claim to be, you know, in some sense. And I feel like those games have done probably more to get to mainstream the medium than, than most RPGs have done. Like maybe like D and D's marketing, current marketing push and, and, you know, ha having celebrity players and stuff like that is doing a lot of that. But like, um, I feel like the board games are grabbing people on the periphery, you know? Um, yeah. And I, I think it, well, I'm not going to discount D and D's resurgence in the past couple of years. I mean, they are doing a ton of marketing and popularity. And I think people who wouldn't have played D and D or wouldn't have said they played D and D are now saying so. Yes. Um, I think like I was, I played D and my kids are a little older now. They're 16 and 20, but when they were younger, we'd sometimes do pancakes and D and D mostly for me. Um, and, but like, they'd be like eight and 12 and I try to explain it and they all played video games. And I, going back to that, I could say like, do you know, hit points, do you know, this, I'm like, yeah, this was the people who came up with that. And they were like, Oh, like, this is the start of that. And then digital games took this and digitized it, but they created the language. And I said, but you're going to get to do a lot more. Like, you know, in a video game where there's the edge of the world where you only have so many buttons, like you just do whatever you want here. And they're like, all right, cool. Got it. Yeah. Um, but I would start people on a one-off and I would start them with a system that's dirt simple. Like, even if you're like, okay, I don't want to do a board game. I want to do a role-playing game. Like here are your five action cards, right? These are the, like your tricks. You can do a lot of stuff and you can talk, but here's the things you're good at instead of just listing it on a sheet. Um, and you're like, you know, like instead of five skills, it's like, here are your skills in your hand. And you're like, oh, that feels more like I have options. Yeah, uh, Phoenix Dawn Command. That was a uh, uh, Keith. Was it Keith Baker that did that? He, that's his uh, his his card based RPG, which is, I think, exactly that. It's like it's you have a you have a deck of cards that's your character, and you um, they have basically the little skills on them. Like you don't really have a character sheet. Right. Yeah. Um, but mostly I would just do a one off, and I wouldn't do anything like super complicated, mm -hmm. right, or subtle. Like be a be a cartoon. Um, you know, you're the you're trying to stop a bank robbery or start a bank robbery or, you know, something that's, you know, you're the Avengers, like something that people are like, Oh, okay. I get it. I'm Captain America. I can throw a shield. Like it, it doesn't have to be, they haven't seen these cliches. That's what I love. Like when I would, my son was younger and they're in middle school, I used to run these role-playing things where I would do stuff that everyone else would roll their eyes. <laughs> and I'm like, they've never seen it before. There's an interesting kernel in there of, of, okay. So you have, you guys, I want to get some people into something simple. And then I feel like another piece of that might be like, give them something unique to do um, so that they have that sense of distinction from the other players. And that for a lot of, a lot of talk in RPGs is about like balancing um, characters, but I feel like what people are trying to get at there is like balance contribution to the story and not so much character power. I feel like uh, a lot of times character power is uh, used as a, like a placeholder for story contribution. Um, and when you're designing like a legacy game, do you consider that like kind of balance there? I do. I have to say that I'm not a big fan of character roles being tightly defined. Like when people start talking about like, so I'm the tank, this is my job. And you're the healer because it makes it feel like you're locked into something you have to do. And 
like I was fine when I was a kid. Oh, back in my, you know, I know I'm getting into back in my day and things change and stuff, but I found it interesting to be a fragile wizard who had to like pick his moment to do something really powerful. But then after that had to be clever to stay out of harm's way. Like I didn't feel like I wasn't contributing because I wasn't rolling a 20 sider every round, but it put the burden on me to do it. So I think new players would have trouble, but I think as long as everyone is engaged in the scene, I find it really homogenizing if everyone has the same power level and basically almost the same things they can do with a slightly different name. I thought that was something in fourth edition of D and D that like really I bounced off of was Mm. like everyone has something that does like one D eight damage at first level. You know, it just has a different name. Right. I'm like, well, we're all the same now. Like I like characters that are flawed and I would find it interesting as a, as a kid to play someone who had like a four dexterity because that's a more interesting Mm. character, but that's not for everyone. And it's not necessarily for a first player. Mm, Yeah, I see. So, so you, so there's a philosophy there where it's like, there's perhaps a divergent goal for entry level players and more experienced players. I think so. I, 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 well, I know people are perfect. Like we all have things we're good at and things we're bad at and we all have Mm -hmm. flaws and we all have things that we try to get around. And if you saw a movie, I mean, that's, it's hard to write a Superman movie. Yeah. Cause you're like, what's, he's just good at everything and noble, right? He doesn't have a bad day. And so it's hard to write a story about a character who's just really great and powerful and does the right thing every time. So having characters with built in weaknesses, whether that's literally a flaw or an Achilles heel or a trait that's low. I mean, if you have that, then it's like more interesting um, to to play. You get better stories out of it. So um, I just don't, you know, I can't say for sure what that, what that means, you know, for a new player. Hmm. Yeah, because I feel, I feel like sometimes players will approach, some players that are new that I've introduced to games will approach them and you tell them they can do anything in the game and then they run up against that wall of like a, a really crappy stat and then there's a there's a what is it it's like a deflation almost of like oh well okay i guess i could try anything but like i, I can't really do anything um and i I've, I've run into that enough that i'm cautious about it now but I don't really know how to mitigate it. I think it's expectation Hmm. stuff, which is, you know, you're going to be good at stuff and bad at stuff. You can try to do anything, but in the real life, you might not succeed. Like, you know, if you're going to play pickup basketball against an NBA player, you, you wouldn't do well, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean you couldn't accept the challenge and see what happens. Right. And I, I think framing it in that way, like you have the ability, your character, you're in complete control of your character, like in real life. So you can try things, but that doesn't mean that you're going to succeed at everything. And as long as they know that failure is interesting, and if the system is designed in such a way that failure creates narrative moments, yep. right? It's not just, oh, you missed, you failed, thanks for playing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's the deflating moment, but it's like, okay, you failed, but here's what you learned out of it, or here is the great scene, or you earn the respect of the person, like, man, you tried to play pickup basketball against me, and you're like, why? Right. You're kind of cool. I like you. And then like the scene goes from there because the, the person tried to do something interesting, um, right. failed, but then that failure led to a different place. Um, mm. 
one of the things like you missed, you missed, no, you failed, you missed. Okay, you try to jump across a pit, you fall in the pit. What you take some damage? What's in there? Right? What? Why is that now an interesting place to be as opposed to you're just all beat up, you're hurt, and your friends have to come to your rescue? Now, with a veteran player, you don't have to do that. It's like, why do you do that? Why do you jump into? Okay, well, you're just going to have to sit there for a couple rounds while we figure out how to get you out. But a new player should always find that the story has become interesting through their actions, even if it was interesting through failure. Okay, so talking about failure, then, did you ever encounter um, a project that failed or um, like an obstacle that was just just a big one that and and I, I want to talk about like how you overcame that particular bump or that adversity, whether it was from notes that you got from somebody else on on a project or like a, just a problem you couldn't tease apart like is there what are some techniques for like doing that well i mean failure is part of the creative process and pr plenty of things fail along the way sometimes they fail right at the mm -hmm. beginning sometimes you're almost at the end sometimes you know sometimes they hit the market and then you don't get the feedback that you wanted um, it never feels good. I mean, it feels better when you know it ahead of time and you're like, Hey, this isn't working. We need to stop. And you're like, man, all those hours that I put in. Um, but when I start a game, if I get a game that I can do like a playable prototype where I'm like, this plays, I would say one third of those make it to market. Mm -hmm. Um, even though you're like, Hey, I have a game and it's like, no, it's just, it's going to be fine. So. I mean, Seafall didn't get good reviews from people. Um, and that didn't feel good because I put a lot of like my heart and soul uh -huh. into it. But, you know, after some time passes, you can look back on it and be like, oh, I see what I was trying to do. And I could see why people didn't uh, didn't enjoy it or the wrong people played it. And here's how I would do it differently. If you succeed at everything, you're never going to learn. I'm going to do a mm -hmm. really interesting unexpected analogy i remember hearing that when they were casting the movie the graduate back in the late 60s robert redford a young handsome robert redford wanted the uh role and the director's mm -hmm. like no i need someone who's really at a crossroads and isn't sure and like strikes out with women and that's how he ends up now i'm gonna spoil this movie but like dating a, a woman and then sleeping with her mom at the same time, like he has to be written, not because he's a cool guy, but because he's conflicted <laughs> and doesn't know how to react. And Robert was like, I can play that. And the director said, how many times have you struck out with a woman? And he said, what do you mean? <laughs> he's like, well, you ask her on a date and she says, well, no, must be nice. Oh, that can happen. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, he honestly just did not understand right. that there was a fail state to asking someone out. I mean, yeah, it also gets into the sexual politics of the right. 60s and a lot of other things. But the story still goes the same. Like if you just succeeded everything, like Spider-Man's more interesting than Superman because he's constantly failing. So I, I just think that we, we avoid failure because it feels bad. And yes, it feels bad. You tried something and you didn't succeed. And if you just like, well, I'll never try that again. I'm bad at it. That's one lesson you can take away. And in some cases, it's probably fine. Um, but if it really matters to you, you should work to get the perspective of like, well, what did I try to do and why didn't it work and how could I do it better or how could I do it the same? You know, and like, what, what, do I, what would I do the next time to try it differently? And that's how you just change 
as a person. That's some solid advice. Yeah. Uh, I particularly, I, I've, I've gone through two really large overhauls on my game already because I realized they had foundational problems. And so, you know, the first one that I encountered was shown to me by, you know, the internet on Reddit and I just, that. Oh yeah. <laughs> wow. That's, that's a hard way to get feedback. <laughs> yeah. But it was good. I'm sure everyone was very considerate and very thoughtful. Yeah, yeah. And was... had and had nuanced points and were willing to engage in a polite back and forth about their design <laughs> intentions. Yeah. Well, one person was, but mostly it was just shame <laughs> on me. Yeah. 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 But they're willing to be blunt. They'll tell you when you screwed up. And yeah. they'll be very truthful about it. Or at least as truthful as they understand it. Mm-hmm. Like harsh criticism it sucks but at the same time it's really useful for getting better uh yeah there's there's harsh criticism and there's unblemished criticism and i've received both and given both and while it's not fun it can be a productive moment but then there's like drive-by shitting like that you probably encountered there which is just a chance to be nasty yeah and yeah the greater internet dickwad theory. Sometimes yeah. they're not wrong, though, even if they are being an ass about it. <laughs> oh, I'm not saying they're wrong. What I'm saying is it's hard to get by the stinging rebuke and not get defensive. Like, you have to really be good at going, okay, they have a point, as opposed to, well, you're wrong, right? And then getting defensive. And it's the same message in different ways. I'm just saying it's an advanced feedback technique because you have to have a real good sense of self. Um, and uh, or the ability to just look through past stuff or just you just like sleep a lot and then feel better after it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That that's some that's some solid advice. Well, we're coming up on the end here and uh, we have we have a question that uh is kind of our big question and um we've been talking about this for some time but we want to get your perspective on it. Yeah, um when, when you hear it, you'll realize why it's the question. And I kind of wanted to frame it in the most open way possible. So here goes. Are RPGs games? And if not, what are they? Um, sure, they're games. I mean, the definition of a game is uh, sort of something that is interesting to debate. But the fact that the word G in there stands for game is kind of a tip off for me. Um, I, I don't think a game needs a winner or loser. I think a game is a structured activity where people agree to play by the same set of rules towards a goal that they all agree on for entertainment, right? That's what Mm. makes it different than a meeting. Um, I can give you a hundred different, different definitions, but I'm like, if people say you want to get together and play a game and I'm like, what's the game? It's like, we're going to throw rocks against the fence and see to be the first one who knocks his can off. I'm like, that's not a game. That's a physical activity with a win condition. Like, I mean, we're kind of splitting hairs at that point. Um, mm-hmm. You know, is golf a sport? Is darts a sport? Like, you can get into all these, like, technical definitions. Um, can it be a sport like gymnastics, which is only rated in a subjective opinion? Um, but I think it's a game. I mean, I, I think that Candyland is a game, even though you have no say in the outcome of it because you're three and you don't know. <laughs> I love yeah. it when people rip on Candyland. It's not a game. I'm like, you're not three, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. like, <laughs> it's a game to them. Um, 
I think as long as you sit down, you say, Here, here's how we all agree to spend our time in this activity. And we're doing it because it's fun. And sometimes it's fun to, there's a win condition and sometimes it's not. Sometimes we're working together and sometimes we're working against each other and sometimes there's teams. And then there's usually a place where we say, okay, uh, and this is when it ends, either because it's 10 o'clock and we all have work tomorrow or because there's a logical ending place. So I think role-playing games are very much a game. Did I answer right? <laughs> well, I, I think a number of us here are, are are of the opinion that they're they're not games, but um, what are they then? Uh, story creation engines. Okay, but I could just write an algorithm that concatenates stuff together to do that, and I would agree that's not a game. Um, yeah, that that may be more what they are. Um, that's this is that's why the debates go ongoing. It's just like, sure. I mean, yeah. we're never, we're never gonna, I, I, well, it depends. Like let's take classic D and D and all the things that go with it. Sure. Uh, we're going to try to get to like, I think now they say at 20th level, you retire now. So it's like, here's a goal to get to 20th level. Here's the obstacles in the way. Mm -hmm. Can you make it? Um, then let's take something like the cool and lonely courage. I said, which is like, you're going to die. Please tell me a story of why. Right. Um, but the fact is I, I approach them the same way mm, mm -hmm. and I approach them, which is how can I create interesting memories and how does my skill apply to that? Because players interact with it and are motivated and driven for their characters to be interesting or win or level up or get the gold or whatever they're trying to do. I think that moves it into a game because we are competing against fate to make our character do what we want them to do and that makes it like a game of chance but that's just because of, it's player driven hmm. if it's not player driven i'd say like yeah sure it's a story creation engine thank you very much we're gonna be at each other's throats for like the next two months because of this <laughs> my work here is done no, no we're not <laughs> yeah we are <laughs> See, there's not even an agreement about whether we're going to be at each other's throats yet. So, so yeah. <laughs> I will say, though, that, Rob, based on, like, other interviews that we've listened to of yours and comments you've made here now, like, the awareness you have of the importance of story made that answer quite a surprise. Okay. All right. Um. Well, you know, it's a subjective opinion because there is no objectivity depending on how you define it. And I, I will say, like, my love of games started with role-playing games. So I'm, you're going to have a hard time convincing me that it's anything but a game because it's given me joy. I'm not going to watch a story generation engine or want to participate in it. Um, sometimes it's just how you frame things. Yeah, it does. Yeah, but that, that that gets into like the phenomenology perception as well, which is a extra deep rabbit hole. Um, yeah. Well, um, I did it. I broke expectation. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I win. You've won. You have one flail forward. Yes, I won the book. That's you what, won it. That's it. That's the only thing that when I role play with people, I'm like, this is a book. Please don't try to win the book. <laughs> well you've won flail forward we'll be delivering your trophy awesome. uh sometime in the next six to eight weeks thank you fantastic i'll clear room for it <laughs> yeah
<laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> we will need your home address and a set of keys. Oh, mm-hmm. nope. No, with and social security number and bank accounts and unsubscribe. Yeah, there's a deposit <laughs> check that comes along yes. with it. But uh... you'll get it back threefold. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rob, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to to share your thoughts on on RPGs and design in general. And uh, I, I hope you had a an enjoyable conversation. And uh, we're we're always open to do it again in the future for Car, Cat, Fred, Mark, and myself. Uh, thanks for listening to Flail Forward and uh, join us again next time where maybe it'll be even cooler. Maybe. Or not. We'll probably just go down. To, it'll just be awful. <laughs> As so, usual. Get ready for both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I realized after we were talking about failure and your thing is called Flail Forward, I was like, wait a minute, why am I not leveraging that? Like, it's in the name of your podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, also Pornhub, just because, you know, whatever.